0: Hello, and welcome to the EdSurge Podcast, a weekly look at the future of learning. I'm Stephen Unu, an editor here at EdSurge. In 1995, NASA astronaut Dr. Bernard Harris became the first African American to perform a spacewalk. The occasion was his second space shuttle flight during a mission that included a rendezvous with the Russian space station Mir. In all, Dr. Harris ended up spending more than 18 days in space, traveling more than 7 million miles.
1: And by the way, just, um, you know, our tastes change when we're in space. And so things that we like on the ground, we test our food. Uh, We may not like it in space because of that.
0: Throughout his career, Dr. Harris has collected an impressive list of STEM credentials, including an MD, a master's in biomedical science, and training as a flight surgeon. Since returning to Earth, he's focused on helping others do the same. Today, he's the CEO of NIMSI, the National Math and Science Initiative, a 12-year-old group that got its start as a way to stem the tide, so to speak, on a troubling statistic that by 2020, a majority of jobs will require some sort of post-secondary training, including many that touch on science and technology, but too few students, especially minorities and other underrepresented groups, are receiving an adequate grounding in these areas. So enter NIMSI, which focuses on a few key areas. They run programs on boosting the number of STEM teachers, increasing student access to AP courses, and training existing teachers. Recently, they've also begun exploring a new avenue for reaching students from backgrounds that are underrepresented in STEM. Dr. Harris calls it CRT, or Culturally Responsive Teaching. It's the idea that students learn best when teachers make some intentional connection to their background or lived experience. This week on the podcast, we sit down with Dr. Harris to hear his thoughts about STEM education and CRT. And be sure to listen to the end on this one, as we close the podcast with a super fun rapid fire Q&A, answering all your burning space questions, like what space food really tastes like and what astronauts really see when they're up there. So if you like space, you won't want to miss it. Here are highlights from that conversation. Dr. Harris, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. So I wanted to talk a little bit about culturally responsive teaching. Uh, what, what is the concept behind uh, CRT? It, it really is fairly
1: simple. It says that when students arrive on these campuses all across this country, they arrive with certain biases that are based on uh, the, the communities that they have come from, the cultures in which they are a part of, uh, their uh, environment in which they've, they've come from. And we've approached teaching up to this point that we bring in students from many different um, sectors and different communities, and we force them to learn uh, our way. And what we're finding, and especially in, in um, you know underperforming schools and in rural areas and in a lot of urban uh, cities, is that the performances of those students are really based on um, their inability to adjust to the, how we teach them. And it is really simply, if you take their culture, their backgrounds into account, Then and teach in a um, culturally responsive way, then you have a better opportunity uh, getting at those students and improve their student learning.
0: So what's an example that might help a student see themselves in a way that's uh, relevant to their lives?
1: Uh, By by example, you mean in, in how we might teach them? Yes. Okay. So, you know, one of the things I think is really critical, um, you know, it's called culturally responsive teaching for a reason. And that is the educator, that teacher in the classroom, is really responsible for uh, identifying those students and uh, assessing what they need. And one way it wants to do that is to uh, invite students to talk about their background so that the educator gets a good feel for their experience, their prior experience, the communities in which they come from, uh, even talking about their, their ethnicity in terms of whether they're African-American or Latino or they are uh, from another country. And uh, by learning that, you do two things. You engage the student. You tell the student that they are valuable and that where they come from is valuable and then you, um, with uh, some of the teachings that are now being uh, taught, some of the professional development that's now being taught around this area, uh, we then provide the tools for those teachers to um, slightly revise the way in which, they're, in which they teach the students. And it makes us, uh, we have found it made a significant difference.
0: mm mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you, in your in your own uh, scholastic career, uh, you have quite a few STEM degrees? Did you have any examples? Uh, where did this idea come from, and and had you experienced it yourself? Well, you
1: know, I'm old school. I'm 63 years old, so I grew up in the in the old traditional way, right? In traditional education, and this this concept is is fairly new. But I'll, I will. I, I will give an example of, uh, when I was introduced to the concept where I could relate to this. So, um, there are in, in, um, the the past before, um, we had integration, um, you know, that there were separate, but equal schools, uh, in this country. Mm -hmm. And, um, and the schools, and I'll speak in the African-American community, uh, those schools typically did not have the latest books, even though it was, quote unquote, separate but equal, didn't have the latest books. Those books were, you know, could be, you know, years old. Uh, and the teachers in those classrooms were African-American teachers. And I would probably say the same thing would probably be true for this Hispanic community, too. Um, those teachers and I've, I've talked to a number of them because they understand the culture in which those african-american students uh, came from were uh, better able to engage them in the way that they um that that they learn that material much better now integration occurred and then integration required not only that the students are integrated, but also the teachers are integrated. And now what happens is that there, are in some cases, not all cases, a disconnect in, in the educational process because, because of that. So, you know, when you ask me for an example, that's, the, that's, for me, a very clear example coming out of the African-American community where I can see where, boy, this really makes sense.
0: Yeah. Uh, How responsive have teachers and schools that you've worked with been to CRT, especially if they feel that their own staff lacks diversity?
1: I think uh, it's been really, uh, we've we've gotten a real good reception uh, because it just kind of makes sense, right? When When you think about it and understand that the framework in which this was developed and then you see it in action, in the results of, um, and the impact on the students that it's, um, then, then you kind of
0: go, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, that's great. Um, do you think the lack of diversity in K-12 STEM teaching is a problem? I think it can be, you know, I'm, I'm a believer that,
1: uh, students, no matter what background that they, that they, uh, come from, Um, no matter what their ethnicity is, and a teacher uh, who is an effective teacher who takes into account um, the environment in which they come from and all of these things that we're talking about uh, today, that they can uh, effectively teach those students. So, uh, you know, I am not saying that an African-American teacher has to teach an African-American student. But I am saying that an African-American teacher should be able to, with the right training, be able to teach that African-American student, that Hispanic student, that white student, that student from wherever their background. And that's what we are trying to do at um, NIMSE.
0: How long would it take a teacher to go through one of these programs?
1: So we teach our teachers uh, sort of a train-the-trainer model, in, in a sense. We have we call institutes. We have it in the summer and then we also have them in the spring and the fall where we bring thousands of teachers from all over the country uh, for anywhere from a four to five day training. And part of that training is um, teaching them how to teach STEM subjects and using project-based learning and 21st century skills, all of those things that you may have uh, and I'm sure your listeners have, have heard of um, built around uh, the Common Core, uh, which is a, a standard for for teaching, and um, and in the in delivering those sort of standard teaching practices, then we add those elements uh, around uh, being culturally responsive, and it really is a mindset. And, um, and what we have seen is that uh, the students, the, the teachers are very receptive.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about your partnership with Sylvan Learning, the tutoring center company. Uh, you're working with them to identify and serve what's known as STEM deserts. Can you talk about what a STEM desert is and uh, a little bit about this partnership?
1: Yeah. So... Uh, a couple of years ago, we pulled together about 50 experts uh, in education from all over the country, you know, including Department of Education, by the way. And, um, and you know, there are a number of these uh, powerful organizations out, out there. And we asked the question, what are the key elements that uh, drive STEM learning? And we came up, this group came up with about 115 so far. And I say so far because we believe that this is an effort that's ever evolving. And, um, you know, those elements would include funding, state funding for uh, education, uh, teacher certification, uh, whether there are even STEM courses being offered in a a district or in a a school. And... uh, are there measurements being taken? Looking at um, student uh, doing student assessments. You know how well are they how they're doing. And that's just to name a few. From that, we uh, created a framework of success uh, in STEM, and then we took all of that and we put it in an interactive uh, platform, online platform, and we call it the SOI, the STEM Opportunity Index. So you can go to the STEM Opportunity Index. Dot com, and you'll see a a map and you can click on your state and you can see how it matches up against these, these indicators that we put together. And you can go all the way down to the district level, you can go all the way down to the school level. So in doing that, we found out that there are areas in the country where STEM courses are not even offered. And we call those STEM deserts. Or there may be not enough of uh, enough of these elements to make that that learning effective, and so our whole objective in putting this together is for us to be able to go in and to see where the gaps are, and then where we can provide those services uh, to those schools, to those communities, to those states. And of course, we're not; we can't do everything. So we've also formed a partnership of like-minded educational groups and partners to support us.
0: And so from my understanding, part of that is you would offer like supplementary courses like um, computer science and things like that in these STEM deserts to kind of um, bridge that gap?
1: Well, it's more than that. It is in, in the STEM deserts, as we have them defined, may mean that there are not enough STEM courses being offered. Uh, For example, algebra is one of the key um, uh, courses that you should be taking uh, in secondary education. There are some schools in this country that don't even offer, they don't have algebra teachers. And so what we, you know, our primary job is to go into that school and uh, take that teacher and give them the tools in order to teach math. Uh, for example, or teach science, or teach chemistry, and then on top of that, we have added computer science. So uh, we uh, just started this year a, a new computer science um, initiative. It's K through twelve computer science, where we're beginning to teach computer science starting in you know in the first grade all the way up to the twelfth grade. And of course, those grades are different. So the courses, the computer science courses, talk differently based on the age and the grade level.
0: So one interesting thing that I found from doing a little bit of research is that these STEM deserts can kind of be in unexpected geographic areas, like maybe the city of Seattle, that people wouldn't necessarily think, oh, that's a place where a STEM desert can occur. Were there any surprises for you and where some of these STEM deserts were located?
1: Yeah, certainly, certainly. You know, in one of the, the biggest areas, STEM areas, um, are the rural communities. So when we talk about education and uh, and how it may not be as impactful as it should, we always think about the inner city. You know, we we always go to the city, but there are communities around this this nation in the rural areas where they don't have enough teachers, or the teachers are brought in and they're teaching they're they're generalists, and then they're being required to teach uh, chemistry or and. And, you know the, the STEM uh, courses without that expertise. And this is where we come in because we'll take those teachers, we'll bring them in and we'll give them those principles that they need in order to effectively teach those
0: courses. So NIMSI focuses a lot on uh, AP prep. Can you talk to me a little bit about whether culturally responsive teaching fits into something like AP prep when one of the goals of AP is to focus on a high stakes test and um, a culturally responsive teaching just seems to me to be the opposite of, of preparing for a high stakes, one size fits all test. How do you see those two concepts kind of playing off each other?
1: Yeah, I think they, I think they go hand in hand. I think they're synergistic and let me explain why. So AP courses as, as a whole, Um, around the country have been offered in uh, uh, schools and school districts that um, uh, have the wherewithal uh, to offer them, right? So it is having an insightful uh, leadership saying that we need to offer these courses, having parents who are demanding that these courses be offered. And you'll find that mostly in um, high-performing uh, school districts across the country. Uh, what's happening is in those school districts that don't have that type of, that level of support and insight, these courses are not being offered. And so what we're trying to do at NIMSI, we have uh, part of our mission to reach those students furthest from opportunity, is to go to those communities where we know that they are not, that they're not offering these courses and basically offering these courses. And one of our, our, our really good examples is New York City. About three or four years ago, New York City decided that instead of having AP courses offered sporadically throughout their school districts, and remember they are a fairly large school district, that they would, they started a program called AP for All, meaning that they were going to offer AP in every high school in New York City. And the Department of Education did this. Uh, we provide that, that training. Now think about this. If we go into a school that already has all of those things that I talked about, those elements that, that make success happen, we don't, um, in, in some cases we may not be needed. Right. And in those cases, what we do is we add maybe computer science courses that have not our are, are AP courses that are, not being offered there. And we offer a variety of them. And then there are the schools that don't have it because they don't have the resources necessary to to support it. So, and we think that many of those areas are areas and that uh, where culture, whether it's a community, ethnicity or the culture of that community is not prepared to offer this sort of advanced placement this cultural sensitive um, responsive training comes into bear because now we're taking that into account and not only on our assessment, but the way in which we deliver the the courses, the training in those schools.
0: Uh, So from my understanding, you took two separate trips into space. Um, Do you mind if we play a little bit of rapid fire Q&A about some burning space questions? Uh Oh, I'm a little scared now, okay <laughs> <laughs> these are These are pretty straightforward, uh, at least I hope so. Uh, do you have a favorite space song or movie?
1: Oh, my favorite movie would probably be Armageddon. And I know it, it was a silly movie, but it was very entertaining. And none of the science made sense, but it was still a good movie.
0: <laughs> <laughs> do you have a, a favorite song like Rocket Man or anything? Um that space related? I actually I actually
1: don't maybe the um what's it 2001 a space odyssey? Sure. probably yeah the the classic.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh did you have a favorite and least favorite space food? My least favorite space food
1: um was uh probably macaroni. And let me tell you why. Because it's dehydrated. And so it's cooked, but then it's, all the water is taken out of it, and so you have to rehydrate it. So sometimes when you rehydrate it, it doesn't uh, all the water doesn't get absorbed into the, the the food, and so it gets really crunchy and it's nasty. <laughs> my favorite my favorite space food is shrimp cocktail, uh, which also is dehydrated, but it's it's filled with um, you know hot sauce, and uh, so it, it really is very flavorful once you allow the the water to be absorbed in, in the shrimp. And by the way, just, um, you know, our tastes change when we're in space. And so things that we like on the ground,
0: we test our food. Uh, we may not like it in space because of that. Interesting. Um, what did you miss most from Earth when you were in space?
1: I miss my family. Um, and that was, uh, I got a chance to talk with them. Um, and, and, you know, we have video conferencing and, and internet. And so uh, I did that. And then, probably, when you were, since we we're talking food, my, uh, I miss having a salad. You know, we take that for granted, having lettuce and tomatoes. We can't have that up in space because it, uh, that type of fresh food doesn't last very long in that microgravity environment. Hmm. Uh,
0: Now that you're back on Earth, uh, what do you miss most about space?
1: I miss looking at the Earth from space. Um, I was lucky enough on my second mission to do a spacewalk. So I donned this 350-pound spacesuit and I uh, walked outside You know, and it really is a misnomer. You're not walking. You're pulling yourself along since you're floating. So you're pulling, you're using handrails and pulling yourself along. And I got uh, situated in our robotic arm. We had a special foot uh, hole uh, that, that kept our feet in place. And I got lifted up above the payload bay, about 35 feet. And I had a beautiful view of the crew in the spaceship. And then behind that was the planet Earth. And behind planet Earth was this sea of stars called the Milky Way, Milky. And it was, um, that galaxy is incredible. And all of this, as we're going around the world at 17,500 miles an hour, seeing a sunset or sunrise every 45 minutes.
0: Yeah, that sounds, I couldn't even imagine it. Uh, Did you personally experience the overview effect where you realize how fragile our world is and the need to protect it? Definitely. You know,
1: NASA was one of the first agency to notice um, uh, the uh, climate change. Uh, we saw it initially in the expansion of the Sahara Desert, uh, starting from, you know, early Gemini and Apollo times to now. And uh, as, it, as the, the planet heats up, that gets larger. And you, you just heard this week, There was a large uh, fracture off of an ice shelf down in Antarctica. And so uh, all of those things make me very concerned. Um, We need to take care of this planet. It's our responsibility. I think God gave us that responsibility and we need to act.
0: Uh, And lastly, uh, what's a myth most people think is true about space but actually isn't?
1: That there is sound in space. And um, sound, when you, um, and we we get this myth because we watch all the sci-fi shows where, you know, you have the battles in space where lasers fire and hit um, uh, spaceships and they explode and you hear the explosion and all that. If that happened in space, uh, you would see the light, but you would not hear anything, nor would you feel anything because that force sound and force needs uh, matter to propagate. It needs, it needs air around it. Uh, That's how we hear is because when our vocal cords vibrate, the the vocal cords vibrate, they cause a pulse that goes through the air and that hits our funny looking ears that are made to pick up that, that uh, wave. And in space, You have nothing to propagate that wave. And so it's completely
0: silent. Dr. Harris, thank you so much for joining us. It certainly has been my pleasure. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Thanks again to Dr. Harris for joining us and to everyone out there for listening. Each week, we bring you a fresh look at how education is changing. So if you can, please take a moment to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get podcasts. And take a moment to give us a rating or review to help others find us. This episode was edited by me, Steven Uno, and produced by my colleague, Jeff Young. We'll be back next week. Stay tuned. <music>